Look around you. There is nothing besides this. Ryokan was an 18th century Japanese Zen monk. And he wrote, look around you. There is nothing besides this. Experience happens. How we relate to it determines whether we live happily or unhappily. One way of relating leads to light. Another way of relating leads to darkness. How is it? How does it work this way? In my last talk, I spoke about what happens in a moment of seeing someone that we're attracted to. When the visible object comes in contact with the eye sensitivity, giving rise to seeing consciousness, there's contact. And there comes from that contact and that seeing consciousness a feeling, feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or a neutral feeling. Generally in our lives, pleasant experience leads to enjoyment, clinging, attachment, craving for more of it. Unpleasant experience usually leads to aversion, avoidance, denial, pushing away from experience. Neutral feelings are hardly noticed. In either case, or in any of these three relationships to experience, we create the illusion of I, whether we're attracted to, avoid, or ignorant of. We create the illusion of me, I. This is an unskillful relationship according to the Buddha's teaching because inherent in that construction of I in that moment, there is suffering or unhappiness. What is it that will make a skillful relationship to that experience? You have heard in previous Dharma talks of the hindrances that obscure the mind, visitors to the mind which cloud how we see things, which distort the reality of the way things are. The miracle of mindfulness that we practice here is that when we're motivated by a pure longing to understand the way things are, to understand the truth, when we participate in our experience with awareness, when we see things as they are without the haze of illusion, then mindfulness affords us that momentary freedom from compulsively regenerating a sense of I or me. The hindrances, desire or attachment, Joseph spoke about restlessness, doubt. Marcia spoke about aversion or difficult emotional states was also spoken about. There are many varieties of attraction and pushing away from experience. But there are two qualities or two attributes of the mind which arise with attachment that I want to speak about tonight. It's important to acknowledge them because they are a source of considerable misunderstanding and therefore a cause of unhappiness 
But I want to point them out because they're subtle and difficult to see in their operation in our life. The first of these mental factors is called diti, or in the Buddhist language, uh, usually translated as wrong view. And we might ask, wrong view of what? There are multiple layers of wrong views and understandings in our everyday perceptions living in this world. The basic wrong views are generally taking what is impermanent as permanent, taking as satisfactory that which cannot provide a sense of security, and taking all that happens here as being solid or reflective of someone, something. The roots of all these wrong views is in the wrong understanding of karma. Many of us have a general understanding of karma, but when in intensive practice like this, our actions and our reactions and our attempts to understand practice often reflect a subtle misunderstanding of the law of moral cause and effect. And one manifestation of this misunderstanding is or appears when we've established enough mindfulness to begin to recognize that we have fallen prey to feelings of victimization. When we feel that we are a victim of our mind. When we see the incessant, repetitive, reactive habits that are so common, so prevalent in the mind. When we feel at the mercy of our feelings. When we feel overwhelmed by conditions. This wrong belief or this feeling of victimization is an incomplete belief that I am solely the product of my past. That what I experience now is due to what's happened in the past. But these feelings of being a pawn in the game of life rest upon a hidden view, a hidden understanding. And that view seems to include or seems to preclude we having a choice. That the momentum of the reactive patterns in our mind feels so strong that it's as if we don't have a choice in how to respond to conditions that arise. Or that at least current actions are minimized don't have much effect. If we were asked, do we believe that, most of us would say no. We believe that we do have some control, some effect in the present moment. But when we see how strongly anger arises, desire arises, even when we don't want it to, often we may feel like heaving a sigh of resignation and moaning, here I go again. And we all have that at times. It's like there's someone else running our life. When we have such a reaction of resignation, then we're temporarily believing that we have no choice. that the effect of our past conditioning is preeminent. But in the previous example of a moment of seeing something that we are attracted to or someone that we're attracted to, in that moment of seeing, there is the reaction of attraction and attachment. And in that moment, there are a composite of 
mental factors or attributes of the mind which it is helpful to begin to understand. First, there's the energized will to see. There's a choice to look. There's a determined and an energetic reconnection or connection with that object. And there's a sustaining of our mind single-pointedly on that object. Whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste. When that feeling of pleasantness arises through that sustained contact with experience, we take delight in it. We feel pleasant. We feel pleasure. And we have a sense of enjoyment and ease about us. These mental factors that I've just listed, energy, will, choice, determination, connection, sustaining the mind, single-pointed focus, delight, a sense of ease, these are all mental factors that arise. We can feel them, we can know them, we can experience them. They arise in every moment of craving or attachment, and they develop momentum with repetition. The longer we gaze, the more momentum, the stronger they become. The gazing or the indulging in that pleasant feeling is motivated by a sense of consuming more, becoming more, enjoying more, having more of that pleasant experience. It's something like self-aggrandizing pleasantness. And we want to feel good. We want to continue to feel good. When the sight leaves the eye, the pleasantness leaves with it. But the mind has the capability of remembering, as you all know. And we can call to mind that pleasant sight again and again and again. And we can re-stimulate that pleasant feeling within us. We can reconnect with it. Our sense of ourself, I feel good, is maintained by that feeling, is attached to that feeling. And to be away from that pleasant feeling is painful. And when we're in pain, we don't feel good about ourselves. So we get attached to this pleasant feeling and we crave more of it. Whether it's dessert or your VR or a letter from home or whatever. When the pleasantness isn't right there, we'll remember and imagine it in order to continue to feel good. This attachment craving is dependent on and obscures multiple layers of illusion. Multiple layers of illusion. The first being that, there, that the other person or that other object is a source of pleasure to us. The illusion that that person or object can remain a source of pleasure permanently. The illusion that they can provide a sense or that that enjoyment can provide a sense of fulfillment to us. And even that there's someone here that it's all happening to. Our patterns of reaction, our patterns of craving and attachment, of avoidance and fear and clinging, liking and disliking, are really deep. The illusions are pervasive. It is difficult to change. It is difficult to let go of our preferences, our likes and dislikes. And in that difficulty, as we hang on, we actually live in bondage to our sense of ourself, what we like, what we dislike, caught or stuck there. We can't change so easily. This sense of who we are is fictitious. 
But to deny our habits, to deny our clinging and our fear and our avoidance, challenges that familiar sense of ourself, challenges how we experience ourselves, challenges who we think we are. And just at, at dinner I was talking to a couple of staff people and they were saying, why is it that dukkha is so good in practice? Why is it that every tradition says that suffering is good? And I said, it isn't suffering itself that is good. Obviously it isn't. But it's when we experience a lot of suffering or a lot of dukkha, it's when we begin to stretch who we are, what we can feel, what we can accept. When we begin to let go of our limits, let go of our likes and dislikes, and open to that which is familiar. It's painful. It's fearful. It makes us feel vulnerable and insecure. That's the dukkha that we feel in and of itself. Not so pleasant, but indicative of growth, change, opening. Nizagadatta Maharaj was a wise man in India a few years ago. And he said that pleasure is readily accepted while all the powers of the self reject pain. As the acceptance of pain is the denial of the self and the self stands in the way of true happiness, the wholehearted acceptance of pain releases the springs of happiness. In order to accept pain, in order to open to pain, to discover this source of happiness requires that we understand the answer to the question, why bother? Why bother with this? But not only to understand why bother, but to activate our energy, our intention, our motivation, our will, our choice, to not passively accept things the way they are, to not feel victimized by the momentum of our life as it is, the momentum of our sense of self as it is. Rather, to accept pain requires that we directly confront the forces of inertia, of habit, of laziness that hold us in this limited sense of who we are. Without accepting pain, we will be victimized by it. When I was a monk in Burma a few years ago, my conditioning was to take a, an attitude of, oh, poor me, whenever I met some difficulty, whenever I met some pain, or whenever I didn't feel that I could confront or deal with or go on or got frustrated by what I was experiencing. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm, not, I'm too old. Upandita doesn't understand me. Oh, poor me, my father didn't treat me right. Oh, poor me, I don't have a good relationship. Oh, poor me. I kept falling into this uh, pattern of uh, oh, poor me-ism. Why I can't do what I want to do. I was perpetually, it, it seemed like I was perpetually caught in this self-indulgent uh, dwelling with my sorrows and limitations and uh, my misfortunes. And I felt justified in my reflections because indeed all those things could be true. But it didn't give me any relief from my suffering, from my unhappiness. I had strong determination, I had a lot of energy, but I still succumbed to this seemingly endless persistence of self-pity as a reaction to unsatisfactory experience and practice. My self-image seemed to be resolutely sustained on the belief that I was inadequate, which made it impossible to practice. 
But practice requires that we be as resolute and determined and energetic as our habits. For as often and as persistently as our mental habits uh, take over, practice requires that we recognize them. (coughs) Practice requires that we not submit, that we not fall victim to, oh poor me. That we stay with the feelings that arise. Stay with the vulnerability, the feelings of vulnerability, the feelings of pain, whether it's physical or mental, whether it's shame or embarrassment, so that we can stay with that loss of the sense of who we are. When I was practicing, I had several, in Burma, I had several years of doing retreats here, and so I had seen through doing retreats over the years that You know, mindfulness works. It does bring some spaciousness, some happiness, some changes to your life. And so I had quite a lot of confidence, had a lot of energy, but it felt like my practice there was a constant challenge to my belief and my confidence. Practice until I didn't believe anymore and didn't have any more confidence and was still required to be present with things in that way. When I would reflect on the law of karma, I could feel inspired, encouraged, and it would help temporarily and partially to remove my self-pity. But what was required more than reflection on and understanding of the law of karma was developing patience a persistent patience where I had to learn to be as persistently patient as my habitual tendencies were persistent. To be with them, to learn to persevere in the face of dukkha and not take it personally. Real sense of liberation comes when we can experience pain whether physically or mentally, and understand that it's not me, it's not mine. It comes, it's in the nature of existence. We don't need to personalize it. Each moment of perseverance, each moment of persevering in the face of our difficult habits is a karmic act in itself. And depending on the power of the volition, the power of our understanding, the strength of our confidence, this act or these acts in each moment of being mindful will produce their lawful result, will eventually um, lead to happiness. But our old habits are really deeply ingrained, really, we live in a groove called our habits. It's not easy to change them. We need to remind ourselves what we're doing, why we're doing it, how to do it. And in doing that, it's as if we're planting seeds of remembering, remembering to be present remembering why we're doing this, remembering how to do this, so that we encourage ourselves or train ourselves to learn a new way to respond to experience. We have to kind of prompt ourselves or encourage ourselves to try to replace those reactions which lead to unhappiness by mindfulness which leads to happiness. And in the process, It's as if we blindly um, continue to persevere in the face of the momentum. It's a situation where we could say that we're blind the whole time we're learning to see. When we give attention to the moment, when we attend to the moment wisely, 
inherent in that wisdom or inherent in that careful attending is a recognition of their impermanence, their inability to provide that sense of fulfillment, stability, and their essencelessness. It's this wise wise attention that makes the difference between an unskillful reaction and a skillful response. When we understand that mindfulness, the wise attention that fuels mindfulness, is the is the way to breaking habits and cultivating new, then our practice can become interesting and even a delight, a challenge. And dukkha or pain or unhappiness or difficulty doesn't become the stumbling block, doesn't become the end of practice for us, but rather it's a challenge, a task that we can take up with delight when we can creatively respond to our unhappiness, creatively respond to pain in the body, pain in the mind, pain in the heart. We can have confidence in the eventuality of the lawful result, but we don't know when. We don't control the conditions that need to ripen in order for the result to appear. And herein lies the second wrong belief that we sometimes fall prey to. Believing that we're in control. Believing that our intentions and motivations and mindfulness now should produce immediate result. We all fall prey to this when while still experiencing difficulty and pain, we kind of lament to our teachers or ourselves and say, geez, I've been here for three weeks already. How come it's still like this? When is it ever going to turn? When is it going to change? When is the bliss coming? (laughs) Somehow believing that now, three weeks of trying to turn the tide of lifetimes of bad habits is somehow going to um, turn the boat around, so to speak. When the Buddha was asked about the origin of ignorance or the origin of this wrong understanding that we live with, even with his omniscient vision where he could see all beings throughout all time, he couldn't find a beginning of this wrong belief, but rather found that there was no beginning, that it had been that way for as far back as he could see, that we've had this wrong belief. And it leads to this endless wandering throughout successive regeneration of this sense of I. Our cultural conditioning is to expect everything instantly. And we can get most things instantly. But in this, uh, as Joseph calls it, master game of life, it's not our choice to decide when conditions will ripen. To not recognize this law of impermanence leads to expectations, anticipations, hopes, the belief that we're in control, the belief that even if we could control it, control our life, control our reactions, that it would stay stable. When we fall prey to this hopeful expectation, we're again denying or trying to deny the characteristics of all experience impermanence, unsatisfactory nature, essencelessness.
indeed a moment of mindfulness does temporarily put away our reactivity. But, as you've noticed, due to the strength of our conditioning or the momentum of it, it seems to come back immediately. By now, we guess we have seen or we should have seen that no matter how many times we note anger, aversion, attachment, clinging, jealousy, envy, whatever it is we know, it does come back sometime. Maybe not immediately, but sometime later. But maybe we can begin to see the lessening of it. Maybe it doesn't come so quickly, or so strongly, or so persistently. And we get a glimpse into the truth that mindfulness is the way. Awareness of these reactions is the path. We can't overlook the lack of any other highway to ride to awakening. We sacrifice our happiness when we try to deny anicca, anatta, and dukkha. These two ways of wrongly understanding the law of karma, believing that I'm a product of the past, holy, or believing that I can make it happen, I'm in control. They prevent or they rest on the denial of insight into anicca, anatta, and dukkha. The Buddha's teaching points to a different acknowledgement. Acknowledging that our current experience is conditioned by both the past and the present. We can see that the conditions that we have to live with are a result of the past. But our reaction and relationship to them is a choice we make in the present. And so our experience in each moment is balanced or conditioned by both the past and the present. Recognizing that our present energy, determination, understanding, mindfulness, desire for liberation or the truth, condition this experience. So wrong view, these wrong views are sometimes not so easy to see. But our reactions and our response to practice and situations reveals wrong understanding. There's a second mental factor which also arises with attachment or clinging, and that's conceit. And we experience it as the self-evaluating and the comparing mind. No doubt, you've all noticed how frequently we judge ourselves, how frequently we compare ourselves to other yogis, the teachers, uh, some ideal that we think we should be or could be, or even some way that we used to be. This self-evaluation often takes place unconsciously, and because we don't recognize it, we're led along in further reflections and analysis and choices and actions which serve to sustain pleasing and welcomed sense of who we are, to avoid, deny, change, fix, or get away from undesirable self-images, and to maintain the obscure uh, or even unnoticed sense of who we are. But in every instance, whether we're enhancing or pushing away or just ignorant of the sense of I, this comparison, in every instant, the attachment to a sense of I is active. We still create it out of our experience, whether we dislike it, like it, or aren't even aware of it. Have you noticed how little it takes to feel 
like you're unworthy or worthless or inferior, deficient in some way. Something as little as walking out the hall, looking at the bulletin board, seeing that there aren't any notes for you. (laughs) Can send us sometimes into a tailspin of, I'm no good, I'm not worthy. And it really pulls the plug on our practice when we evaluate, judge ourselves by wrong standards. We all have a fear of being judged a failure. We have been judged often in our culture a lot. And we fear this pain of a negative judgment or a feeling of diminishment of who we are or a feeling being judged as inadequate. And it often comes when, you know, people mention it when they come to give their report, come to see us for interviews, how they feel inadequate because they're judging themselves by some standard or by what they expect uh, we want or what they want of themselves. It also happens not only in giving reports but in, in giving Dharma talks. You know, I find myself agonizing over whether my talk is going to be uh, indicative of success or failure. Had an interesting experience last year. Gave a talk here, and I got more notes on that talk being, or commenting that it was one of the best talks they'd heard. But at that same talk, or from that same talk, I got more notes saying it was the worst talk they'd ever heard. The same talk got me both. There's a lesson there. When we fear judgment, when we fear our own judgment or the judgment of others, we'll create all kinds of appearances, behaviors, actions, deceptions in order to hide that fact from ourselves or from others. And the mind is really skillful at this, where we can hide our own sense of inadequacy behind our own deviousness, our deception, our hypocrisy. Even when we see and practice our own tendency to judge and evaluate, to make uh, evaluations that we don't even believe, we still do it. We still find ourselves caught judging ourselves and believing how we evaluate ourselves, how we judge ourselves. I was reminded of an experience I had in Burma. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, one yogi here came in to report, and he said, should I just complain about the way things have been for two days? Or should I tell you about the good sitting I had just before I had to report? And I said, well, why don't you just complain? (laughs) So he proceeded to tell me what he would complain about. And it was like my experience in Burma. I'd went to Burma after some years of practice here. And I was working with Saito Pandita and reporting every day in the format that... um, we have taught you here. And for a couple of weeks, my practice was going along quite good. And I could see that there was uh, increasing continuity and stillness and increasing mindfulness and more pain, more details of pain, more precise knowing of moment-to-moment stuff. And um, there was some continuity with the primary object and recognition of secondary objects in sequence. And then one day, I was practicing, and it all went to hell. I couldn't find the primary object. There was no continuity. There was uh, just a torturous barrage of painful feelings throughout the whole body. Itching and pain and aching and just horrendous. And the mind was total chaos. Just fragments of thoughts and judgments and images and past and planning. Not even full thoughts and certainly not coherent. And I couldn't note any of it. 
I couldn't find a label to put on anything. It was just extreme, I mean really extreme mental and physical discomfort. And of course I didn't like it. <laughs> but on top of that disliking, I added the judgment that I was doing something wrong. But it was my time to go report at two o'clock, so I went to Sayadaw, Upandita, and I was feeling really bad. So I went in to the room and did my bows, and I said, um, practice not going so good today. I think I won't report. And just tried to back out of the room. And Sayadaw looked at me like, yes, what's going on, yogi? And um, I was so nervous, feeling miserable, judging myself as being a really bad yogi. I would like to have been able to be deceptive, but I was too miserable to even lie. <laughs> and so he obviously saw that something was uh, going on, and he kind of dropped his usual persona and just became Uncle, Uncle Oopie. And, uh, <laughs> just, you know, just... <laughs> so, <laughs> he, just, he just kind of encouraged me to be, you know, just kind of, well, t just tell me what's happening. Just use, just use the simple words. Forget the format. Just, you know, and I could see that he was really concerned. So I just blurted out what a miserable mess my practice was and how bad it was going and how that it was. And as I was laying out all my luck, this big grin came over his face. And he was so happy. You know, he couldn't wait to tell me how happy he was. He said, I've been waiting to hear you say this. He said, sometimes yogis come in and they give this really good report, how calm and still and clear and precise. And he says, and I think, hmm, not so good. And then some yogis come in and they're miserable and they can't describe their practice, and it's just torturous. And I know good practice. <laughs> I learned a valuable lesson there. Not to judge experience, not to judge myself by my experience, not to judge my practice by my experience, and also that mindfulness makes the mind go straight. I couldn't lie. I couldn't be deceptive. I couldn't pretend anymore. And in that kind of um, twist, in that one day of uh, seeing that I didn't have a clue as to what good practice was, that I could just stop judging my practice, could just stop judging myself by the amount of pleasantness or unpleasantness that I was experiencing. It allowed me to see that I don't have a basis for evaluating practice, and that dukkha is just unpleasantness. It's not, or it doesn't mean, that my practice is bad. So this is feelings of bad, inferior, um, unworthy. Have you also noticed how easily we can feel elated when we have a good sitting? Or when we, when we feel like we have achieved something in practice, maybe had an insight or two. For the most part, we accept this experience as a confirmation that I'm doing okay. Things are okay. My practice is good. In fact, pride in who we are or what we are is really strongly encouraged in our culture. But have you noticed how at every checkout in every grocery store and many of the best-selling books are how to fix it books? How to fix it, you know, yourself. 
how to learn to love, to fix, adjust, um, dis- you know, enhance, uh, accept, or otherwise change and manipulate this sense of who we are. When we feel this elation, when we, when we do something and we feel, ah, I've got it, I've achieved something, I've, I've, I've accomplished something, the first thing we do is confirm it to ourselves. Yeah? What a good boy I am. Hmm? And secondly, we try to sustain it. We try to reflect on, now how did this happen? How did I have a good sitting? What did I eat? How did I sit? Who was there? What time of day? Did I, how much sleep did I have? So that we can try to make the next sitting just like that good sitting. I don't need to remind you of the result of trying to re-experience the last sitting over again. It doesn't happen. It's gone. But inevitably, we will compare ourselves in this sitting with last sitting, or with that other yogi, or with the teachers, or some story you've heard from one of the teachers. And when we do have a good sitting, or we do have some insight, or we do feel some clarity or understanding, and then we can begin to feel like, now I'm in control. Now I've got it together. But what goes up must come down. <laughs> and therein lies the pain of self-congratulatory uh, elation. What's going on here in this feelings of inferiority and superiority? What we can say is min- minimally is that We have a reaction to a feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness, which, unnoticed, uh, leads to a sense of who we are. Then we take that sense of who we are to be real, to be solid, when we compare it to others, when we compare it to a former self. But because this happens so quickly, and because we haven't noticed it, it's as if or we believe that this judgment is correct. The Buddha's teaching points to another way. Points to not agreeing with or disagreeing with whatever judgment we make, but rather to see the fact of judging itself being impersonal, impermanent to see through the construction of this sense of who I am, I or me, before we react to it with aversion or attachment. To see through the construction of who we are. We don't need to agree or disagree with our judgments or with our self-evaluations. But if we see judging as it arises without that emotional involvement with the content, then gradually there's a thinning of the sense of solidity of who we are. Gradually there's a lessening of that fixedness of self-image. But until such time, we will be periodically tormented by the appearance of the comparing mind. Ryokan, again, wrote of the condition where the ridicule or praise of worldly people means nothing. Following my destiny for the body I have received from my parents, I have only thanks. These two mental factors of conceit and wrong view, they're powerful obstructions to seeing clearly the nature of our life. They're subtle, we have a huge investment in them, they have a lot of momentum in our lives, but like any of the hindrances, we can see through them. We needn't be permanently blinded by their effect. And when we see through them, the effect of their tormenting can be minimized. Only through the practice of mindfulness. Interestingly, 
the factors of mind which make these wrong views and conceit so strong and so powerful are the same factors of mind which make mindfulness powerful. Determination, energy, choice, single-pointedness. All of these factors of mind can be aimed towards our experience wrongly, can be used in the service of creating a sense of I, or can be used in the service of creating a sense of freedom. It's wise attention, wise and careful attention to the momentariness of experience, to the inability to find a stable sense of fulfillment or security, and seeing the ephemeralness, the ever-changing, evanescent nature of the mind and that construction of who we are. Through this mindfulness, through this careful attention, we can learn to respond skillfully rather than react habitually to conditions. I'll stop here. That was all supposed to be the first half. So I guess I have another talk to give later. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Maybe we should sit for just a couple of minutes to let this, um, all these words settle down in the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.